This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, whether that's Rovers throwing in a drab nil-nil in the Championship or taking Newcastle all the way to a penalty shootout in the fifth round of the FA Cup, You'll always be winning with McDelivery. So, the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So, the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants 18+. plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. TIAA is on a mission. Why? Because 54% of Black Americans don't have enough savings to retire. So in collaboration with big name artists like Wyclef Jean, TIAA released Paper Right. New music inspiring a new financial future. With 100% of streaming sales going to a nonprofit that teaches students how to invest. Stream Paper Right now and help close the gap. One in four car batteries is weak and needs to be replaced. Let our professional parts people test your battery for free at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, O'Reilly oh, Auto Parts. Hi, I'm Matt Janssen, and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast. The New York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. Oh, well, wouldn't you know it, once again, bumped into Tony Mowbray here at, here at Brockhall. Tony, how'd you take your brew, mate? Basic really, uh, tea, quite strong, uh, two sugars, and uh, and I always drink out of my favourite mug. Oh, which uh, which one is it? Oh yeah, it's good. And I got it from the Middlesbrough store, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, from yeah. Oh no, 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 Tony, not the middle, the the Rovers one. Oh, this one, right? Yeah, you can get them personalised at um, at the Terrace store, and of course, and as uh, manager of Rovers, I've got. You can get them personalised with all the different players of your choice. Oh, which you know, which which, which players would you have then? Well, you, you obviously you've got your your Lenahans, your Dax, um, you know, your Danny Grahams, you know, proper proper professional footballers. But obviously, I've chosen my favourite, Elliot Bennett. Oh, of, of, of course. Well, Joe Rothwell's one of my favourite players. Any plans to get a mug for him? He'll just have to wait his turn, I think. Yeah, but you know. If you want to get one of these, get your hands on one. You just have to go to the uh, go to the terrace store and enter BRFCS at checkout. Oh well, that's that's brilliant then. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, it's fine. But remember, only Tony drinks out of the Elliot Bennett mug. You'll have to get yourselves one with I don't know Ben Brereton on it. Oh, well, okay then. 
Welcome back everyone to this, the latest episode in the BRFCS.com podcast. In this episode we're talking to Scott Sumner, who's celebrating the 100th edition of the 4000 Holes fanzine. And also at the end we hear from a new contributor to the podcast, John Waring, and he gives us the latest in our series of My First Rover's Memory. Hope you enjoy! It's my great pleasure to welcome as a guest on uh, this episode the editor of 4,000 Holes. It's Scott Sumner. Scott, how are you this evening? Good evening, Ian. Good to be back. Thanks for inviting me on again. Great to have you back on. You're a stalwart of our predictions programmes, of course, and I'm sure we'll revisit those at the end of the season, see who's the prediction champion. But uh, we're here to talk tonight about uh, the impending 100th issue of 4,000 Holes and get a a little bit more information from Scott about uh, what it's been like making the magazine come back to life after so long. So, Scott, when you restarted 4,000 Holes, what were your hopes and fears, and how has it come to pass? What, what have been the, the, the great triumphs, and what have been the, the, the things that you were concerned about as you were uh, going on the journey? Yeah, so 4,000 Holes started in 1989, and it had run pretty much continuously through to about 2013, so when I contacted Dan Clough, the previous editor, in 2017 to start it up again, I suppose there was some trepidation that, is it still relevant? Are people still going to want it? Um, but obviously I was hopeful that it would be a success and people would enjoy it and keep reading it. But generally, I can't remember having particularly any hopes or fears in any big way because I was just caught up in the whirlwind of putting together a brand new issue and not really knowing what I was doing and you know doing the the editing and asking people to contribute sending it to the printers and promoting it and selling it so it was just a kind of at the start make it up as I go along and hope for the best and it, and the uptakes straight away from when I got involved was brilliant and that first issue I did, issue 87, we sold about 370, something like that. And sales have stayed pretty much consistent. And nowadays we have 140 subscribers um, who get them posted out all throughout the season. And they go all over the world as well to, say, Norway and Canada, USA, Australia. So, yeah, I think the good thing is that contributors get it they understand what a fanzine is supposed to be so there's a lot of satirical stuff in there bits of humor and that balances well with the more serious considered articles which are also great so generally yeah it's it's been going all right and uh, one big target was of course to drag it up to issue 100 and that's where we are now so in in your um, tenure as editor what's the I don't know, the the funniest, strangest or weirdest thing to have happened to you during that time? Selling fanzines outside football grounds was quite a novel thing for me. I've done nothing like that in my life before and I've come to quite enjoy that, particularly when people are so nice coming up and pleased to pick up the copy. Um, I've, I've tried to sell a few away games and generally they're okay about that the the authorities like at Wigan and Berry, you know stewards of Aston have been okay but then I got told off at Northampton Town a, an angry woman came out and said oh you, you can't sell anything on, on our on our ground go go away 
that was one funny incident. Occasionally at Ewood, there might be a comment, like when I was, you know, walking through the turnstile with a few fanzines under my arm, someone said, is that promotional material? And, um, well... Insert your own punchline here, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, there was, there was no promotion, mention of promotion in there at all. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, as you well know, being part of a fan group, like I suppose it is, you, various requests come in from angles, you know, people asking you to help out. Yeah. You know, both professional and amateurs, you know, helping them out with the website, which is generally fine. And we enjoy telling tales about how the team's doing or giving a story about Chris Sutton or whatever. One of the strangest was when ones was, well, apparently Michael Appleton was touted as being the next manager of Hibernian. So a, a Scottish journalist was on to me asking about his style of play at the Rovers and everything about him. And it was just one of those very small rumours which didn't come to anything and two month, two or two hours later they'd appointed someone else so so that you don't get roped into you know wasting your time because it is quite a con- time consuming thing that must have been um, quite a difficult question to answer though what was michael appleton's style at rovers it is hardly here long enough to develop one I exactly so I, I couldn't really really say much probably the the craziest story for the fanzine calls for me was the it was the promotion running, um, League One promotion running, and we were playing Peterborough at home on a Thursday night. If ah, you're yes. yes. It was on It was on Sky, so that's when the final issue of the season was due out, and the match was originally due to be on the Saturday, but it was brought forward to Thursday for TV. Yeah. And I normally send the issue to the printers on the Monday, and it gets delivered on the Thursday, which works quite well with the Saturday match, but this one occasion i had no slack but i decided to go with it because it had always gone to plan up to that point uh-huh. inevitably you can imagine what's coming next there was a hitch at the printers and there was a one working day delay to production it ended up with me negotiating that if i could pick them up on the thursday afternoon from rotherham then if they printed them for them, yeah. then that, then it would work out. So I had to go from Blackburn to from, go from Blackburn to Rotherham and back again. And then, fortunately, I was there just in time before the match to you know sell the fanzine where you know promotion fever was rife at that point. <laughs> Fans were you know they were they were there waiting to pick up the fanzine. So it would have been a disaster if I had no fanzines to sell. Um, but it turned out very well in the end. Well, if you ever get that situation again, I'll be delighted to act as an intermediary for you and bring them over from Rotherham. <laughs> but let's hope you don't. Uh, yeah, that's, I think I remember um, bumping into you at Northampton as well in that car park um, behind yeah. the stand. Uh, I didn't think there were there were that uh, unfriendly types there, but you never know. It's strange things, isn't it? People get they get quite proprietorial, I think, about what is uh, what is sold on their premises, and they they get very nervous in case it's. Uh, I don't know unsuitable literature or, or a particular political bent or something, but yeah. or maybe they're just worried about people not buying a program because they bought your fanzine. But there we go. Any road, how pleased are you then that you you did take it over? Yeah, massively. I think when I went to it, there was a certain degree of naivety on my part in that I thought I could put a good fanzine together. I had some new ideas, but ultimately. 
it's all dependent on the quality of the contributors because that's what the content is. It's a, you know, it's done by the fans as a group effort. And I just have the fun part of putting it all together at the end of the day. And um, yeah, it was just so pleasing that straight away so many people got in touch and people really understand what the fanzine is supposed to be and people, you know, sending, you know, great varied articles, um, which makes each issue really, really good. And I think certainly the last one, issue 99, was probably the best one to date, which I've been involved in. And it's just a case of keeping up that consistency, which I'm confident can be done because people, you know, do keep getting involved and people keep buying it. But I think overall, the most pleasing thing has been the fact that I've got to know so many new Rovers fans, and that's both the people who've contributed and also people who you meet outside the ground and you get to know familiar faces, people who buy it each issue and small sections of football fans get a bad name, but it just reinforces that view that 99% of fans are actually really decent people and really nice. So, yeah, connecting with new fans has probably been the most rewarding thing, I'd say. You write for it as well, though. You have written the, the odd article. Have you done much writing before? I wasn't... I, I was more of a mathematical type at school, but I think as I, I as I grew up, I became more and more interested in writing, and the precursor to me taking on the fanzine was I'd actually done a had a year out from my career to study journalism just as a kind of a, a random new thing to learn because I am fascinated by the world of journalists and while I don't I'm not a journalist currently I, I don't claim to be I do still like putting together articles and I hope to think that I've got a few good rovers tales to tell and and um, so obviously that helps to you know fill in the corners when you know when there's a few pages which you need to fill in so yeah. a, a few stories of my own to put in there as well well i think one of the one of the really interesting things and certainly over the last few issues as well it seems to be spanning the generations now there are there are uh shall we say more senior writers perhaps like myself or, and some people even older than me and then younger ones as well being introduced to the word of the, well, the world of a fanzine so that the paper the ink real words on a real page and i think that's that's one of the great things about uh, about the fanzine that what's the hardest part though of, of actually editing the magazine and bringing it out scott apart from having to drive over to rotherham on an unsolicited uh, or an unscheduled <laughs> visit shall we say i suppose there's no getting away from it it's a time-consuming process and i did think that as each issue went along and I, I learned how to do it and you know learn shortcuts or whatever there's no getting away from the fact that there is a certain big chunk of time you need to put into putting together the issue and collating it all but it's enjoyable time I, I still enjoy putting each issue together and because the contributions are always so good it it makes it a pleasurable thing to do but it does come with sacrifices so you might realize that oh what's that tv series everyone's been talking about oh yeah i haven't had time to watch that or oh i haven't been out cycling for a couple of months and so it's fine i accept it but you know there are sacrifices 
I'm my own worst enemy at times in that I'm a bit of a perfectionist and so I do spend a lot of time checking and making sure each issue is pretty much as perfect as it can be. I know that's not totally the fanzine ethic because fanzines traditionally are a, an amateur kind of cobbled together in someone's bedroom production. So it doesn't matter if they're full of typos. It doesn't matter if there's one page which you can't read or anything like that. But yes. I, I suppose I do take a certain degree of pride in putting something out which is really good. And I, I think no one can argue when they pick it up and they look at it and think, oh, yeah, that 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 looks good. It looks professional, but it still feels like a fanzine. And is that still that amateur thing? Yeah, I think you, you sent me a copy of um, the Raw Milk fanzine, the Accrington Stanley one, that, that you featured in that was talking about the fanzine culture. And that, to me, the production values of that the equivalent of a match day magazine at a, a Premier League stadium. I mean, fair play to them and all that, but it re- it really did look like a genuine magazine that you pick up at sort of like WH Smiths or something like that. I think it's it's a hard balance to strike, and I think you've certainly managed to do that with four thousand holes. Yeah, but- certainly. I think um, yeah, I get a lot of the other. We we swap a lot of fanzines with. Um, you know, all, all across the country to like, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And most of the fanzines are that kind of glossy thing. And ones like United We Stand and Laguna, which are, they are practically professional yeah. productions, like yeah. big glossy magazines and five pounds to purchase the, the Arsenal one. So wow. I think that kind of goes away from being a proper fanzine. It's a difficult. It is a difficult balance, but I, I like to think at one pound fifty, four thousand dollars, you are getting great value for money. So, Scott, what's the most rewarding thing that you've done with four thousand holes? Uh, I think it's something which actually started way back in the early nineties when the the creators got it going. In that they didn't know how successful it would be. And in the heyday, they were selling almost a 1,000 copies. So wow. in addition to various advertisers they had, it meant financially it was very secure and they ended up having lots of money left over at the end of the season. And at one stage, they spent it on a big away day at Plymouth, but then realised that, the best thing to do with with any leftover money would be to donate it to charity. Um, so almost from the off, any extra money was donated to local charities. But also they used to go into the club shop at the end of the season and buy scarves and memorabilia and then hand them out to kids around oh, the right. ground. Do you know, so, I never, I never realised they did that. Yeah, so it was kind of giving something back into the club because some money was going into the club and also promoting Blackburn Rovers in terms of, you know, you know, indoctrinating kids into Blackburn Rovers. Quite right too, yes. Uh, so a similar thing has kind of happened with me in that I didn't know how big the take-up would be, but financially it is secure in that the number of copies sold, you know, far outweighs the outgoing costs of printing and other costs. Um, so any leftover money, I do try to give to local charities and say, if one of the subscribers or contributors is, you know, running a marathon or whatever, I'll chip in a ten pound or a twenty pound here. On one occasion, I ran a 
um, competition on Facebook for um, a rose cushion, which I'd actually purchased from the terrace store. The terrace store, you say? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, are the podcast sponsors. They are indeed. So some fine range of merchandise, ladies and gentlemen. And if you use the checkout code BRFCS, you'll gain yourselves an exclusive 10% discount. Thanks for mentioning that, Scott. (laughs) Yeah, so I'd I'd got this cushion using the the code um, to run a competition. So I ran it on Facebook and it turned out the winner was actually from Bavaria. And I was like, oh, I've got to send this to southern Germany. And then I started to put the pieces together and realised this guy, Chris Cunz, goes by the name of Bavarian Rovers on, on Twitter. Media. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. On, the, on the forum as well, yes. Yeah. You, and I then, think I remember seeing that now on your Twitter feed. Yeah, and then eventually I worked out, I'd actually met him before, so... I'd gone to the 2011 Women's World Cup to watch an England game against Japan in Augsburg. And after the match outside the ground, I saw someone in a Rover shirt. And it's one of those things I think we've all done where you're in a faraway place and you see a Rover shirt and you think, I've got to go to speak to that person. Absolutely. um, I spoke to this person for, say, just five to ten minutes walking away from the ground. And then that was it until I worked out that it's Bavarian Rovers. So it's that connection to people, which I mentioned before, which has been a pleasing thing about being involved. Again, has come around in a completely different way in that I've, I've reconnected with a person in that way. That's fantastic. I can, to that point about seeing a Rover shirt, I can, I can remember now being on holiday in Malta one year and there was um, some kind of, uh, well, there's always a Saints day in Malta they, they celebrate so many of them there's usually there's usually one but we're wandering down the main street in Valletta and I could see this this character in what looked like a jester's outfit but it was blue and white halves and I, I sort of said, I've, I've, I've got to investigate this this is a, this is a bit unusual and sure enough they were wearing I think like umbro team wear but the yeah. the saint for that quarter in Valletta the the, the colors were blue and white so there was a procession about to start, and these guys were running down the street ahead of the procession, sort of like waving flags and ringing bells and all that sort of stuff. But they were they were wearing <laughs> rover shirts in reality. So I, took, I remember taking loads of photos. So, yeah, I didn't know whether to feel a bit of a fool for like, running after them or getting really excited because I see blue and white halves. But uh, yes, I can relate to that. I can absolutely relate to that. And we have got this series in the fanzine running called All Over the World. And in the last issue, there was an excellent article by Zander Bertwistle talking about when he was teaching in Zambia. And he got caught up in this political rally because it was a politically tense time. Uh-huh. But he'd been noticed this rover shirt in the middle of this rally. So he sprinted through, barged past people and spoke <laughs> this, this Zambian fan. So he tells that tale in the latest issue, which... Um, it's just a great tale and, again, reinforces that point yeah. we just discussed. That sense of community. Never mind the fact there's a military coup going on. Yeah. You've got a rover <laughs> shirt on. That's fab- fabulous stuff. So uh, with all the submissions that you received and all the uh, the contributors' pieces that have been sent to you, um, what have you received but you couldn't publish for whatever reason, be it good taste or in case you alerted the libel lawyers? Everyone who submits stuff is sensible and they don't step over any stupid line. So they they keep it relevant and 
accurate and don't slip in into, into any libelous territory, anything overly offensive. Obviously, a fanzine has to be edgy at times, but I think people know where to stop stop it. And where to draw the where, line. Yeah, where the boundary is. I think one of the, the, the strangest submissions was, it was a cover, an album cover from the Black and White Minstrels by... Oh, cracky. And, by Andy Cole, who was one of the black and white minstrels. Oh, gen- genuinely, so one of the minstrels called Andy Cole. Yeah. <laughs> so I must stress <laughs> wow. that this wasn't submitted with any <laughs> ill will. It simply came with a comment saying, I'm not sure how we could use this, if at all. And so, yeah, it, it took about 10 seconds to think. I think we'll just leave the black and white yes, minstrel yes. in the 1970s where they belong. Where they belong. I, I'd, ne- I'd never heard of them, to be honest. And I asked my mum, oh, who, who, who were they? And she says, oh, yeah, we used to love that in the 1970s. So You're making me feel very old now, Scott, you see, because at about sort of like 7 or 7.30 on a Saturday night, that will be the, the earliest light entertainment show that will come on. It's um, yes, as you say, probably best left to one side. And uh, but you've not had any uh, correspondence from uh, lawyers of certain agents, no cease and desist letters like we've had at PRFCS. No, nothing like that. Although you know, bring it on. I'm all for a bit of fun and see what happens. Well, you, you say that, yeah. As long as you've got good personal indemnity insurance. <laughs> What's lined up for issue 100, Scott? Then any special items, any teasers that you can sort of like. Uh, dangle out there yeah it's a brilliant edition um i put more time into this than any before because i do want to make it a memorable edition to celebrate what is a great achievement because a lot of people have put a lot of time into it over 30 years and to get to 100 issues is just quite remarkable for an amateur production so issue 100 will celebrate its history and I've done a lot of detective work and managed to track down every single front cover and basically put them all on display in the issue. Fantastic. Um, so it's almost like a history of the Rovers yeah, yeah, of yeah. 30 years. Um, it's been difficult because there was a strange era in the late 90s where none of them had issue numbers on. Um, <laughs> so cataloging them was an absolute nightmare. So... Fortunately, my late 90s knowledge is pretty good, so piecing it all together based on what was inside each one and the topical stories, it was quite fun, actually, in the end. I quite enjoyed doing that. And there was a scary moment where I thought, it might not be issue 100. There's an issue <laughs> missing somewhere. Because just purely because that counting wasn't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I'm I'm 99.9% sure that this is actually issue 100. Um, so what else is in there? We've got, well, I've managed to track down pretty much all of the people who started it up in the late 80s. Um, some of them didn't want to be included in the issue. That's fine. They put their time in and want to take a back seat now. Um, but I'm glad to say I've sat down with Brendan Searson, who's probably the longest serving member of the 4000 Holes team. He was one of the co-creators and was involved for pretty much 20 years until he passed it over to Dan Clough. So yeah, so there's a great Q&A with him talking about 
those early days and you know some of the special memories he has and you know problems he faced along the way Great um, and various stories have come out through me trying to track down the history um so just as a few snippets of things over the years so there was of course the thatch card which was um i do remember that yeah which was a free gift in one of the early editions it was indeed it was the time when id cards were possibly coming coming into football and obviously margaret thatcher was was the uh, vice president yeah <laughs> do you do you, have you managed to get hold of a copy of a thatch card i've got an image of one you've got the image yeah yeah the actual um but Brendan also played me the 4,000 Holes single, which was released. Um, Flying. Called Flying, yes, yes I remember right. that as well. Which, um, <laughs> which referenced the uh, the famous banner over... Um, over Turf Moor. Over Burnley, yeah. Um, maybe the highlight of 4,000 Holes is this spoof story, which was in one of the fanzines, which ended up in the hands of Blackburn Council and they were duped into believing it was true. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's a really good story, which is in there. Um, so you'll have to pick up a copy. To oh, it. very much so. Yeah, that sounds really good. I know the, the, there's an American satirical magazine called The Onion, which I think is their equivalent, probably Private Eye or something like that. And I think lazy journalists are on a quiet news day. Uh, yeah. They can be easily fooled with stories that are in the onion and they run with them, <laughs> believing them to be genuine. And there was that thing last week, wasn't there, where the Daily Express printed a copy of um, the, a blue passport, as it will be post-Brexit, and they, they'd taken it from a tweet from the Monty Python Twitter account. All right, OK. <laughs> so, so the royal crest in the middle, have said instead of it saying, Oniswaki Mali Pons, it said your mother smells of... Uh, your father was a hamster and your mother smells of elderberries from the um, me, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And I think that was up on the website of the Express for about three days. Well, well yeah, to, to kind of keep up with the 4,000 old brand, I, I do try to tweet out kind of jokey you know sarcastic things which some people might believe and might not believe um, <laughs> so it's all it's all good fun in the end fantastic well, i look forward to reading that one in particular so um issue 100 that's terrific you said that was your ambition to get there but what's next then what are your unfulfilled ambitions where does the magazine go from here yeah, I suppose it's difficult to say now because it'd be stupid to say, oh, let's aim for issue A thousand. 200. <laughs> yeah. um, as has been the case right from the start, I can only take one issue at a time. At the moment, I'm still really enjoying putting it together. It's, it is rewarding and I'm glad to be doing it. Where could I go? It could become bigger, sell more copies. Yeah, but I think you've got to be realistic and accept that we are living in a paperless society or at least an increasingly paperless society. I'm happy with the number of people who read it and there's nothing wrong staying a cult classic, not bestseller, um, to, to quote niche. the fruits. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, niche. I think so, it's, it's interesting though with, with, with the, the whole fanzine because there will be a whole generation that's grown up probably not appreciating at all what a fanzine is. And dare I say it, some of our very younger supporters <laughs> will probably still look at programmes and think, well, what on earth are they for? You know, I can I can look it up on a website on my phone. What what on earth is that all about? But there's something, I don't know, there is something rewarding about the paper, 
back, being able to fold it up and put it in your pocket and carry it around with you and all that sort of good stuff. And whilst you know, a Kindle has its place, I think there's, there's still a place for a, a magazine and that gives it its USP. It's something a little bit different. I suppose it's it's like the reading equivalent of vinyl, isn't it? The vinyl yeah, yeah. is having something of a, um, a renaissance. There are, there are people that are of my age that are revisiting their stacked hi-fi systems and so they're amazing their nephews, nieces, children and grandchildren are saying, what's this circular thing that's spinning round and why are you dropping a needle on it? So maybe 4,000 holes can do that but i don't know maybe at some point in the future it could be accompanied by a four thousand holes app scott I, i'm very much a traditionalist in that i like i like the programs i like the fact that of a hard copy fanzine and i don't know moving towards any app or anything like that i, I don't know how anything like that would particularly work and i don't know we'll, we'll see but for the minute a hard copy fanzine is sustainable and yeah, just take one issue at a time, I think. The app should just be a page where it has your email address and send contributions here. Yeah. It should be like the, the most stripped down, <laughs> <laughs> the, bare, the barest application possible. So I suppose the, the final and obvious question then is, I know Kidder Street is, has been renamed Scott's Corner, and people will be able to buy the magazine when? Uh, so there's actually four home games in February, so it will be available on Kidder Street um, before every home match, but will first be on sale at the Fulham match, which obviously will be the the big day when it'll be heaving, and um, I'll hopefully have enough issues to to hand out to everyone. Fantastic! And if, if somebody who's listening to this uh, can't get down to the ground, or is uh, is one of your uh, your overseas fans, and they want to buy issue one hundred on its own, if they're not a subscriber, how would they go about that? Yeah, so there's um, a website. Um, it's got a a funny address actually but if you go through our social media accounts um there will be links posted to it so you can buy it online but if if you want to join the mailing list just email roversfanzine at gmail.com but yeah the the link to buy it online and on ebay are in the usual place on brfcs.com and on twitter facebook etc so yeah, there will be copies available to buy online as well. Fantastic. I'm sure you'll tweet them out again near the time and we will retweet it as well. And we can put something in the thread on our site when we drop this uh, this episode as well. Scott, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's been fantastic, uh, well, contributing and reading 4,000 holes over the full 30 years. I don't think I got issue one. I think it, I came in at issue two. It was probably the first time I saw it on sale. So maybe if you can dig out a copy of issue one and send me a photocopy or something, then I can at least say I've read every every issue uh, that's been published. I think it's terrific that the the fanzine has has been rekindled and it's all down to your efforts. I think you've stuck at it uh, tenaciously. And you're a friend of the podcast as well, so what more is there to ask? So thanks once again for your time, Scott. It's much appreciated and good luck with issue 100 and we look forward to uh, at least what another 100 after that. Thanks very much, Ian. Cheers. You're welcome. Thanks, Scott. And now here's John Waring with his earliest Rovers memories. Hi, this is John Waring. Age 67 and Rovers fan for at least 60 years of those. I was born in Rufford near Ormskirk. My dad a local farmer, and my mum a mill girl from Bamber Bridge. We lived in the country, and at that time never strayed very far from where we lived. We used to go on the train with mum to see her mum and dad, 
most weeks, but never went very far. I was keen on football, and so was my dad, but he loved playing. As a farmer, I never had any spare time beyond playing a game on a Saturday. I was too young to tell, but I'm told he was an excellent footballer, who turned down playing for Liverpool twice. That sounds an astounding decision these days, but this was during the war. He would have been 14 in 1939. There was a maximum wage, which then would probably have been less than he would get on the family farm, and also signing later on during the war would have meant he would immediately have been conscripted. My mum's family were Rovers fans. Living on the Chorley side of the level crossing on Station Road in Bamber Bridge, they all were. The other side was North End, and though in those days any football fan would often go to other games as well. My granddad and uncle would often go to Deepdale when Rovers were away, just to watch Tom Finney. My first memory as a Rovers fan was when we moved house in May 1960. It was actually on the day of the cup final. I vividly remember everything stopping in the moving front whilst we watched the match. Sometime a few years later, when I was around 9 or 10, I was given the chance to be taken to Ewood by my uncle, who had a Spurs season ticket for me that game. I remember going over after school one Friday night, presumably on the train, to stay with my uncle and auntie. This was not only the first time I'd stayed anywhere other than home, or away from my parents, but also the first time I'd slept anywhere with streetlights and I couldn't sleep. Probably a combination of the lights and the excitement. I spent all Saturday morning waiting for my uncle to come back from work at Leyland Motors, which seemed like an age. Then off on the BBMS bus, special bus to Ewood. We sat up in the old Riverside stand. My recollection is that we played Sheffield United and won 3-1, but that match actually doesn't exist, so I've either got the score or the team we played wrong in my head, but nevertheless I'm pretty confident we won. This led to me being a Rovers fan, which is a challenge when I went to grammar school in Ormskirk in 1964, as everyone else supported Liverpool or Everton. I remember a new lad starting a couple of years later, who had moved from London and was a Charlton fan. Some years after that, we both went down to the valley to see Rovers play out a nil-nil draw, which put, nevertheless put us top of the old second division table. That was the 18th of October 1969. I can remember standing on the huge side terrace that used to be at the valley, and made it one of the biggest grounds of the country at the time. It held 75,000, though there were apparently only 11,560 hardy souls there that day. By that time I was a regular at home games, being old enough to make my own way to Ewood. That required me working on the farm on Saturday morning, cycling two miles to the station in Rufford to get a train to Preston, and then to Mill Hill to get to home games. Thanks very much there to Scott for sharing all the latest news about 4,000 holes and its 100th episode. Big thanks also to John Waring, first-time contributor to the podcast with his earliest Rovers memories. And, of course, as always, our thanks go out to the boys in the Cemetery Band for all the music used in this episode. We'll be back soon, and in our next episode you'll hear from Rich Sharp of the Lancashire Telegraph, and he'll be telling us all about events in the transfer window. And that's one of my favourite quotes that just sent you. Colour my life with the chaos of trouble, because in, in a year we'll we'll laugh about this. <laughs> I'm hoping in a few weeks we will. To be truthful, yeah. right. I'm, de- I'm definitely recording. I mean, it was recording before. It's just that I didn't have the right options on. Oh,
Be warned that once you pick up a refreshingly cold drink from McDonald's and people see just how refreshingly cold that drink from McDonald's is, you may create drink envy. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. For a morning brew that really creates a stir, get any size iced coffee, including caramel and French vanilla, for just 99 cents before 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. It's the 90th minute. All you mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping, and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.